0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, we're going to talk about being hungry. Hungry. That's a word that we have mixed feelings about, I think. And I want to look at Jesus teaching on fasting this morning. Matthew 6:16 6, to 18. Here's what the word of God says. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head And wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You know, as Americans, I think there's no ambiguity about our relationship with food. Is there? Bottom line is we love it a lot. We love food. Raise your hand if you love food. Don't be shy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I can tell you one thing as Americans, we are really picky about the quality of our food. Uh, is this familiar to you, this logo? This amazes me. In 2004, a company called Yelp started up, and it was meant to be a review and recommendation engine. In other words, it's a, a service designed to help people who have spent money on something share that experience and then help guide others to spend their money more wisely or more fruitfully, and that's how it works. What do you mostly associate Yelp with? When do you turn to it most often? Yeah, restaurants, right. That's, I mean, it, they cover a lot of other things. In fact, it reviews shopping even more than restaurants, but I still primarily think of this as a restaurant review service. Did you know that there are, think about this, okay? Yelp, which doesn't produce anything, it's just a place to help people share how they spent their money, their net revenue for the first quarter of this year was $200 million. <laughs> I, I read that, and I'm like, how is that possible that a company can make $200 million by making nothing? What they make is money. But that's our culture. That it's a billion-dollar business to help other people spend their money and tell about about how you spent yours. And one of the reasons we turn to it is because if I'm going to spend my time and my money and my gas to go out and eat food, I want it to be good. I don't just want good food. I want a good atmosphere, a good experience, good service, and so I'll check it out. Do you know that right now, Uh, There are about 137 or 35 million reviews on Yelp altogether, 135 million reviews. And about 18% of those, just shy of 25 million reviews, are just for restaurants. That's 25 million times people have spent money to eat and then felt led to write about it for others with no compensation. Does that blow your mind a little bit? This is how obsessed we are about quality. Those of you who are in business, this will soothe your soul. Charts, graphs, but 135 million reviews to date, 18% of them are for restaurants. And get this figure, okay? This is the breakdown of the demographics of people who use this service. This is us, our church right here. Isn't it? I mean, you're, you're talking about most of us are in the right age demographic, 35 to 55 plus Most of of us are college, grad school, and most of us are 60-plus household income. So we're the ones who are moving this business forward. We care a great deal about the quality of the food we eat. I got to tell you, that is only possible in a country where quantity is not the big issue. I've traveled to parts of the world where everyone's like, Quality? I just want food. I don't, I don't know what a good atmosphere, a good experience. My good experience and good atmosphere is I feel something solid going down my esophagus, and that is a five-star review. I ate today, and that was a great experience. <laughs> That's the honest truth. But beyond the quality, our relationship to food with respect to quantity is staggering. Listen to this. McDonald's on average sells 75 sandwiches a second, 24 hours a day, around the clock. That doesn't seem possible to me. 75 sandwiches a second. Every year in this country, around 2,000 pounds of food is produced for every man, woman, and child in the United States. It's crazy. And out of that 2,000, and by the way, I will send you the Sunday recap so you'll get all of this so you can have something interesting to say the next time you go to that five-star rated restaurant with friends and talk. 2,000 pounds of food a year produced for each one of us. And out of that 2,000 pounds, around 650 pounds of it gets thrown away. Now, we're not the ones doing all the throwing away. That's about a third of the food produced for us doesn't even get eaten. just goes straight to the garbage can. And a lot of that is because it's made for us, but no one buys it. It expires and gets thrown out, and somebody dumpster dives for it, I guess. But that's the way a lot of it goes. It's thrown out between farm and table. About a third of the food produced. And together, we have so much food. What just happened? We have so much food. And we throw away around 50 million tons every year. By some estimates, it's enough to fill a football stadium seven times to the top with food. That's how much food we throw away. It's clear that even though there are 42 million people in America who live in food-insecure households, meaning... Their next meal is either unsure or unavailable. For the majority of us here at Harvest, hunger is not a pressing daily issue. Some of us remember a time. I used to actually remember a time in my life where I was in a food-insecure household through my seminary years, and I experienced for the first time in my life what it was like to actually worry about my next meal, and God took care of us. But for the vast majority of us sitting in this room, Food is not a daily pressing concern. And because we are so well-resourced, we throw away food so casually. We look at our children, I'm done eating. i oh, throw away. Just throw away. Throw it away. 50 million tons a year in the midst of starvation and world hunger. Just throw it away, kid. We have a complicated relationship with food. And there are a lot of moral and spiritual implications to our relationship with food. I'm not here to preach about waste and stewardship and all that. I just wanted to get that out to you because when we hear Jesus teach about fasting, it's going to affect us pretty strongly. Fasting is not a very common practice in the American church. The idea of willingly giving up food is ridiculous. It's offensive almost. It creates strong negative emotions. I was surprised that as you know, I've been, I I usually don't consult commentaries when I write sermons, but I'm preaching on Jesus sermon and I'm freaked out massively. I don't want to get it wrong. So I've been reading a ton of commentaries wanting to make sure I understand, get at the heart of this message. I was surprised to discover that a good number of commentaries, they will write like 30 pages on the Lord's Prayer, which is right before this, and then they get to the, the verses on fasting, and at most a paragraph maybe, a page or two. Some of them just blow it off altogether like those verses aren't even in the Bible. And how, I, I really am amazed by this, that there's a strong American bias against fasting as a legitimate spiritual practice. And even those who affirm it is a good thing Delight in the knowledge that is not actually commanded in the New Testament. So you don't have to do it. But I really believe that fasting is one of the ways that our souls, our spirits, bend towards God. And I want to I invite you to calm the voice of protest in your spirit. And with an open heart and an open mind, listen to what Jesus says to you and to me about fasting. The first question I got to address is, what is it? What is fasting? And I'm going to make a strong statement um, that maybe some people will disagree with, but I want to say it this way. Fasting is not the same as abstinence, okay? Fasting is about food and nothing else. The word translated fasting literally means doing without food. And I understand that um, that's been the traditional definition of fasting for centuries. That's the way I always thought of it. And I'm going to admit to you, I don't like fasting. In fact, I think I hate it a lot. How many of you are with me? Just the idea of fasting, you've tried it and you can't stand it. It puts you in a bad mood. How is this supposed to help me grow? I'm ticked off all day long. Yeah, yeah. I, when you choose not to eat, when you experience physical hunger, it's a really irritating thing. And people come up with, and some of it's legitimate, but I think some of the self-diagnosis of hypoglycemia and whatever else are maybe overblown because we have all these reasons. Why I, you know, I can't even drive a car when I don't eat. It's not safe. All right, okay. Yep. So for, for a small margin of the population, I think that's technically medically true. But I wonder... I wonder. Here's the truth. Some years ago, when a spiritual leader told me this new idea that, hey, it doesn't just have to be food. You can fast from television, social media, the internet, movies, golf. I was elated. Secretly inside, I was overjoyed and relieved because I, really? That counts as fasting too. And I remember going into Lenten season, I'm like, okay, thank you, Lord. I'm going to give up video games for like a month, maybe 40 days. That's awesome. Here's what I discovered, though. None of those things touches me the way fasting from food touches me. Because every one of those things I fast from, there's a legitimate substitute to fill up the space that it leaves behind. Here's what I noticed about myself. When I gave up Netflix, I watched network television. <laughs> when I gave up movies, I played more video games. And when I gave up golf, I suddenly rediscovered my love of tennis. Everything else I fast from, I can gorge on a substitute, but here's the interesting thing about fasting from food: There is no substitute. Oh, I gave up food, but at least there's air. Oh, Oh, thank God. That was delicious air. It will not be ignored. You cannot dismiss it. It intrudes upon your consciousness all the time. When I fast, I find it's impossible to ignore my hunger. When I fast from food, it's impossible not to be mindful that I'm fasting today because it feels terrible and it presses in on my consciousness almost constantly. But here's the value of fasting for food is that constant hunger pain, that reminder is a, a remembrance of why I'm doing this in the first place. See, during Lent in the past, I've given up video games and Netflix and things like that and all the while, I found that I wasn't even thinking about Jesus. I was just missing Netflix. I'm like, oh, i got to make a list on my phone of shows i got to catch up on. <laughs> and I wasn't really thinking about because I wasn't experiencing this invasive, intruding, constant reminder that this is a season I've marked apart for me to draw closer to Christ, for me to experience something deep in my spirit. And so I'm just going to say it this way. I think it is a legitimate way to grow spiritually if I give up some of those other things, especially if they're becoming an obsession or an addiction for me. But that, that is not fasting per se. To me, I call those abstinence for the sake of learning self-control, developing focus, learning how to say no to myself. And that has great value. But fasting from food is still an essential element of spiritual growth. And I, want to, I don't want to be too dogmatic about it, but I want to make that distinction because at our church, I want to establish that when we talk about fasting, we are primarily talking about food. All those other fasts are helpful, but let's not use those other fasts to, to wipe off the table any call to fast from food. I think that fasting from food is designed by God To touch us at a place nothing else, no other self-denial will touch us. You with me so far? Okay. So why should we fast? What should occasion fasting? Because the truth is, in the Old Testament, it is only commanded explicitly one time, and that's on the Day of Atonement, a day of common national repentance over sin. But it's not commanded anywhere else in Scripture. It doesn't say, thou shalt fast. It presumes fasting, but it doesn't command it. So when should we fast? And people, you should see how many arguments are raging in the commentaries over the answer to this question, why should we fast or when should we fast? First, I want to point out that, again, Jesus presumes it. He doesn't say if you fast, but he says when you fast because he presumes that it's going to be a part of the experience of those who follow him that this will be something they do, and he offers practical instruction on it because he expects... He doesn't give instruction on things that, that are not going to be a part of our lives. When he gives instruction on fasting, we can receive in that the assumption that it's going to be a part of the Christian experience, that to be a disciple of Jesus will involve at some level, on some occasion, the practice of fasting. I want to distill what I believe and what I've learned down to two primary triggers for fasting. The first is mourning and sorrow. Whenever you feel these strong emotions in your heart, mourning and sorrow, I think fasting is an appropriate biblical exercise, a practice that allows us to fully express and experience the depths of sorrow and mourning. I mean, have you noticed, it's almost like the, bo- the body knows before our hearts do. Have you noticed that when something really bad happens, when you're deeply saddened by something, you lose your appetite without even trying? I mean, how many of you come from a, a funeral of a loved one and go, I'm starving! Where's lunch? I rarely feel that. When I am deeply troubled and truly sad, mourning, my appetite goes away. When I'm at the hospital and someone brings food and goes, you got to eat. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm here with somebody I care about. I'm not thinking about, oh, I want some lo mein. I'm thinking, just get that away from me. It's not what I'm about right now. It's as if the body instinctively knows that when the heart is truly deep, not just pretending, but really sad, it doesn't feel appropriate to focus on filling my belly. That the yearning for food seems to, Be brushed aside naturally, and replaced by a yearning for comfort. A yearning for the full experience of sadness and sorrow. One of the things we are often mournful about is our own sin—the things we've done that we know are wrong. And if a person is spiritually alive, this is how you know you're spiritually alive. If you sin. You might find justification. You might even be a little defiant or bitter about it. But the truth is, if you're spiritually alive and in Christ, you can't sin and then be totally comfortable with that. Something deep down in you is bothering you. It's creating tension. And very often, that tension is the result of sorrow. I hate that I do this to myself. I hate that I'm like this, that I'm so weak in the face of this, that I can hurt other people this way. I don't like this me. I don't like what I do, what I've chosen, and I wish I were different. I hate, I'm filled with regrets. And yes, other people point it out and we get upset about that, but we don't need anyone else's fingers pointing at us. We know the wrong we've done. And a sign of life in Christ is that when we have done wrong, a deep sorrow eventually overtakes us. And one of the things that has occasioned fasting in Scripture in the the history of God's people is grieving and mourning over our own sin. In 1 Samuel 7, it records that the prophet Samuel called the people of God back to him after they had wandered off and worshipped idols. And as a part of that returning to God, they took all their household idols, all their little carvings and statues, and they threw them away, and they put them aside and said, we will come back to God. And 1 Samuel 7, 6 records this, that when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and on that day, they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. There's this idea that one of the ways we express and experience the sorrow and regret and sadness over our own sin is that we fast. It's not in order to get something. It's not the price I pay to feel better. It's just one of the things I do is I sit in hunger with God and ask him to help me see and experience the wrongness of what I did. Just sit with him in that hunger. And dwell on it. We're so pragmatic in America that everything has to have an immediate consequence or benefit or purpose. Well, if I do that, then what happens? Nothing. You experience sadness. You sit with God. It's like like the Jewish practice of sitting Shiva. Do you guys know what that is? When a person dies in Jewish culture, for like seven days, friends and relatives, like the the surviving family would just sit in the house. For like seven days, they don't do anything. And for seven days, friends and family flow in and out of their home, just sit together. There's not all a conversation. There isn't counseling that happens. It's just sitting in a person's sadness with them, experiencing it together, just saying, I don't have words to describe. I can't even say I understand what it's like to lose your loved one. I'm just going to sit here with you, and we'll be sad together. Sometimes it's enough to just have an experience that makes us feel in the body the things that our hearts are going through. There's another kind of mourning and sorrow that should occasion fasting. That's when we look around at the world outside of us and see how messed up everything is. Is there any shortage of reasons to feel today that our our world is in trouble? I mean, think about it. Think about how many things are going wrong in our world right now. How many ways you can look around you and say, what is happening? Everything is wrong. It's all broken. Something is not right here. And when we see that, the typical response might be outrage, frustration, anger, activism. But I think one of the things God wants from us is when we see a world that is so broken and we feel powerless to do anything about it, that one of the ways we express and experience that is we sit in fasting with God and say, God, I just want to experience the grief of your heart when you see the same things. My outrage, my frustration is not going to change a thing. Let's face it, our outrage and frustration over our own hearts has not succeeded in changing us, has it? How many of you have had the same New Year's resolution for 30 years? What are these days? I got to just read more. 2018 will go by and you'll read a children's book, maybe. Your outrage over your own weakness doesn't save you from it. What do we imagine our outrage is going to do to change the world? Before our actions can accomplish a thing, what God invites us into is to enter into his heart. And that's one of the great gifts of fasting is we sit with God in what he feels. We share his pain over our world and ask him to fill our hearts with godly sorrow, not just self-righteous indignation, not feelings of judgment, but just sadness so that whatever fuels our activism or our response is first the heart of God who shares our grief over those things. Professor Scott McDight was helpful this week as I was studying. He made a point of saying we are body, soul, and spirit, and not bodies with a spirit or soul dwelling in us. Fasting in the Bible then is the organic, unified response of a whole person to a sacred moment. If you're not used to reading theological language, um, let me just break it down simply. I think this is what he's trying to say is, this body I have is not just some superfluous packaging for the, really, the thing that really matters, my soul, my heart, but he's saying that the whole of us, who we are, includes the body. The body is not just the weakest part of that link. It's an essential part of what I am. So that even if my soul and my spirit travel to a place of deep sorrow, if my body is left out of that experience, it's all just going to be up here in the virtual reality world. I feel sad. Yes, I feel sad. But it's when my body enters into the sadness, when it's included in the experience, something profound happens to us at a unified level a strong argument for fasting is that sometimes I look around at the world, and it's not just sorrow over my own brokenness, but just over everything that is so wrong, and we say to God, I'm crying out to you, but before I cry out to you, I want to feel what you feel. I'm so broken over this, but I want my body to be included in the outrage and sadness and experience of it all. I want to feel That unignorable, irrepressible discomfort and emptiness, the hollowness that comes with physical hunger as a way of participating in the body with the same thing I'm feeling in my spirit. And Maybe you say, that's a bunch of hooey. How does that work? I can tell you experientially it does work. God meets us in it. I'm amazed how many things we as Americans relegate just to the virtual, ethereal world of thoughts and feelings. We will not let our bodies go to the places our hearts and spirits are going. Something bad happens. We feel sadness and loss, and instead of entering into it, allowing ourselves to cry, we distract ourselves. I'm leaving, I'm going. And we booze it up. We play something, we watch and we anything to get our minds off of it. We refuse to let our bodies follow our hearts and our souls. But when your body participates, In all that your spirit is feeling, something profound can happen as God meets you in that. And when our bodies are involved in expressing and experiencing our sadness and mourning over the world, an amazing thing can happen. The prophet Isaiah spoke to an Israel who said, We do fast, so it doesn't work, nothing happens. We fast all the time, but God doesn't meet us in it. What's going on with that? And here's how the prophet Isaiah responded to the people. No, this is the kind of fasting I want, God says. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. What he's saying is when your body is caught up in the sorrow and mourning of your spirit, God awakens something in you and your body also follows him into the solution. I've, just, I've learned this. I've watched a lot of those, um, those sort of uh, world relief kind of infomercials late at night. I'm awake when most of you are sleeping. And if I turn on the TV, I see those kids with distended bellies and flies buzzing around. And when I'm full and kind of tired, I look at and go, that's a shame. Someone should do something about that. But when I'm starving because I've fasted and I see that, something else Happens inside me. Wouldn't you agree that that's the case? When your body is caught up in the same mourning and grief, it's more than clucking our tongues and saying that's a shame. Something awakens in us because I feel what I'm seeing. And God pulls out of me more than just sympathy. He pulls out of me the desire to be part of his response. Are you guys with me so far? We're we're all good. There's a lot to process later. And I would welcome, in fact, I would I would enjoy some dialogue with you. If you have questions or protest or whatever else, please write to me. Okay? Here's another occasion for fasting, and that is when we're yearning for intimacy. Yearning for intimacy. Sometimes when a couple is feeling far from one another, they will drop work. They will get a babysitter, and they'll say, look, whatever else we have that obligates us, we got to drop it all. You and I, we're not doing well. I feel far from you. Let's drop everything else and go away together because I need some you time. I need to be with you. If we don't get that, something very bad's going to happen in this relationship. And I think what God is saying to us through fasting is, that's one of the times you're going to know that fasting is the right response is when you're feeling emotionally, spiritually, mentally far from God when you feel like he's a million miles away and you're yearning for the intimacy that once marked your relationship with him. I feel that a lot these days because I'm remembering what it felt like to be 17 and a new Christian. How excited I was about everything related to Jesus. How long it's been since I felt that raw draw to him. I've served him tirelessly for 20 plus years, but still, what I miss is the rawness of my yearning, my hunger for him. And when I'm feeling that, fasting is a part of the right response in that yearning. There was an occasion when the followers of John the Baptist questioned Jesus about fasting. They said, Look, we noticed something, Jesus. John the Baptist, our leader, and all of us, we fast a lot. So do the Pharisees. But we notice your your boys, your crew, y'all full all the time. We're like hungry, going, oh, Lord, draws near. And we look in the restaurant, there's your crew laughing it up and eating it. In fact, they ate and enjoy their food so much that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Look at that fool. We never see him fasting. His whole crew just enjoys themselves. And have you noticed when you're fasting, you just get a little bitter at everyone else? Look at them just eating and hating Jesus. I find that to be the case that when I'm fasting, watching other people chew makes me filled with hate. Just hope you choke on it, you know? And so I think these disciples of John the Baptist are like, what gives with that? Why are we fasting all the time and you claim to be above us, above our leaders, and your boys never fast? How do you explain it? Here's what Jesus said. Look, my boys have me with them right now. What's the point of them fasting? But soon I'm going to be gone and then they will fast. Here's what Jesus is trying to say in his answer. One of the reasons we fast is as an expression of our yearning and hunger for the nearness of God. And when God is in the flesh walking with him, can you imagine how intense the experience must have been for those three years as these 12 men walked and ate and lived with Jesus 24-7? What would that have been like for the Son of God in the form of a human being to dwell with you all day long for three years? Every day was filled with purpose and meaning. Every glance, every touch of your arm by him deeply affected you. And what he said is right now, their focus needs to be not on their hunger, but on me. I am their fullness. I am the, I'm the bread and the wine. Everything they're hungry for, they need to know as they look at me, I fill. But one day very soon, before you know it, I'm going to be gone. I'll be crucified, I will be buried, I will rise and I will ascend to heaven and and they won't have me with them anymore and the emptiness that leaves behind will consume them. If you've ever lost someone you love, you know what a hole that leaves behind. You don't just move on quickly, it leaves something. I was just driving to the park to go to our family picture yesterday, and we drove past the cemetery, and it wasn't a funeral, but I saw cars and people everywhere, scattered in clusters of two or three, standing around graves, and I thought, what an interesting practice. People standing by a grave, just sitting with a person they miss. Leaving flowers, talking, working out things, asking questions. And I'm saying, that person's not there they have no idea you're there, it's not for that person. It's for you. It's a way of saying, I still miss you. I can't bear the idea of a world where where you're not here. And so even if it's just a symbol of the memory of you, I will stand physically by that thing. That's how much it leaves an emptiness when someone we love feels far away. You know what I'm talking about. And in the same way that we will go and sit by a stone Just to remember that, Jesus said that someday I won't be physically with them. And in that time, when I'm physically gone, that yearning, that hollowness overtakes them. One of the ways they will draw near to me, and I will draw near to them, is as they fast and experience real hunger, real yearning, and cry out to me to fill them. Here's why I think that's important. We say words like, I'm starving. How many of you have said that in the last month? I'm starving. Mom, I'm dying of hunger. What's for dinner? We Americans don't come anywhere close to real hunger. The most we experience is peckish. I'm feeling a little... Because it's been like a whole two hours since I shoved stuff into my mouth. I'm just feeling... you know. I love that word peckish. It reminds me of a bird just going... Like in between gorging, we peck at things just to keep putting stuff in there. Ah. My mouth will forget how to chew if I don't keep putting stuff in here. Ah. And so that even before we experience anything approaching real hunger, the minute any gurgling, any sensation of emptiness fills us, we immediately satisfy it. I carry two cliff bars in my bag at all times. I feel stupid saying it, but it's like an emergency. In case what? I, as an American middle-class suburban, might actually die of starvation. How will that ever happen? But what if, like, I have to skip lunch, and then I feel bad? That's unacceptable. (laughs) So I have to have something in my back to make that bad feeling go away. And the minute I feel it, I feel it. I feel it, I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. And that's our habit with every feeling in the body. This mammalian flesh we're encased in has become a master, and we serve it mindlessly. Every craving, every yearning, every distraction is immediately satisfied so that when we talk about hunger at any level, how meaningful can an American's understanding of hunger actually be? When we say things so casually like, Lord, I hunger for you. (laughs) Do we even know what the word hungry feels like? Really feels like? Because in, in fasting, what happens is we actually remember what hunger is. In our flesh, in that part of us we can't ignore, this is what hunger is. And then God says, I want you to connect that to what your soul is feeling. And in the same way that you're drawn to food, that you see food everywhere you look, I want you to look around this world and realize I fill this world. I'm everywhere. Look for me. Learn to hunger for me. Live in a way that the word hunger retains any real meaning for us. And if every time I feel a thing, I immediately satisfy it, I will never really be able to speak of yearning. In a meaningful way. Now, I think about young couples today who are doing long-distance relationship. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna put in air quotes because there's what Jeannie and I did was long-distance. Man, four months at a time, I didn't see her face, I didn't hear her voice. When I would say I miss Jeannie, better believe I meant what I was saying. Like she could have completely changed her appearance, and I wouldn't know for four months. It was like she was on another planet. Today, couples that have the the FaceTime open on their computer, they walk, hey, what are you doing? I'm just going to go over here. They're just constantly connected. So when they say, I miss you, do you really miss each other? You're practically virtual roommates already. We deny ourselves so little that when we speak of yearning and hunger, I'm not sure it has real power anymore. And one of the one of the justifications for fasting as a practice is it allows us as well-resourced satisfied American Christians to experience on purpose something that we are not experiencing regularly real hunger real yearning real emptiness and in that God draws us forward and says this is part of what your soul is going through and I'm going to meet you in both you know In the seminary years, and for the first, I would say, five years of harvest, it was my regular practice to fast on Thursdays. By sharing that with you, I've received my reward in full. But I got to tell you, it was like clockwork for me. Every Thursday, I just had this expectation in my heart that food would not be a part of this day, and I would focus on other things related to my relationship with Jesus. And it was never easy for all those years I did it, for nearly eight years, every week, 24 hours I fasted. And it never got easier. I thought, okay, year six, piece of cake. Still took me off. It still challenged me. It still felt terrible. But I can also tell you that those were eight years in my life when my focus and yearning for God was at a height, man. I remember those Thursdays so fondly. It wasn't every Thursday, but there were some Thursdays where my sense of connection to God was so rich, so powerful, it felt almost sensory. In the intervening years, I got busy. I made more money. The church was successful. Suddenly, I thought, I can't be weak on Thursdays. I got a few, I got to be a good steward of the machine. I got to give it the fuel it needs. It can't run on... I just started eating <laughs> on Thursdays. I remember for a couple of years, I felt intense guilt every time I ate breakfast on Thursday. I'm like, what am I doing? It's for the church. It's for the Lord. This past week, I could not prepare the sermon without fasting. So I revisited the practice and was surprised at how quickly some of those familiar experiences and expressions flooded back into my life. And I don't want us to be rigid or legalistic about it at all. If it doesn't feel like something that arises from God's calling out to you, don't do it. I think fasting out of some blind sense of duty or desire to get some benefit is very destructive. But if what you really want is the nearness of God, I'm going to encourage you to try fasting to bridge that that gap. Yes, of course, pray, cry out to God. But if you try fasting, you might be surprised to discover that in your empty belly, God begins to fill your heart and your spirit. Even if you're a teenager who's got a full day at school and lots of extracurricular activities, and your mom is saying to you, You can't afford a day without food, you're going to get your growth will be stunted, all that. If you feel led by the Lord to try it, I want to beg you, encourage you parents, release your child for one day. I promise they won't die. I promise it won't cost them six inches of height. It might actually spark something in their spirit, in your spirit, that you'll treasure forever. I think fasting is one of those practices that is very dangerous if you're legalistic about it. But if you practice it the right way, it's so life-giving. It'll surprise you in the effect it has on you. Don't fast as a weight loss program. Fast as a soul gain program, okay? Let me give you one last thing here. As we close, that's simply this. I got to turn back to Matthew 6, 16 to 18. I don't want to use... This part of the Sermon on the Mount just as a springboard. But because we touched so deeply on hypocrisy last week, I wanted to give you some teaching in general on fasting. But here's a summation of what Jesus says in this passage about fasting. When you do it, don't do it playing to an audience. Do it as a very personal secret thing between you and God. And I know that one day without food is really a, a marking, significant experience for most of us. And it feels like a waste if other people don't know I did this. So we have little, we're like, walk around like this. We we don't really brush our teeth. We want that foul fasting breath to be our our preceding signal. (sighs) Person fasting here. And when we see someone go, we're like, yeah, sorry, I'm fasting, you know, fasting breath. I chew gum when I fast for that reason because when I fast, you don't it's like a dragon. It's like both ends, same smell. You know what I mean? So I'm just telling you right now. That's one of the secret ways we signal to others. We, we look sallow. We kind of mope around low energy. Right, I'll catch up to you guys in a minute. Hang on. I'll get there. Are you okay? Yeah, I've gone like six hours without food. <laughs> I'm at death's door. Please have the paramedics on standby just in case I don't make it to the meeting. What God is, what Jesus is saying is not put on an act, put on special ribbons. He's just saying go through your hygiene. The whole thing of putting oil on and all that, it's not some extraordinary illusion to look like you're doing great. It just says don't put on a show. Brush your teeth. Take a shower. Don't wear sweats to work. Act like any other day, but in the secret realm, in your private heart, you and Jesus are going through something that is sacred. That is powerful and very personal to you. Don't play to an audience. And I promise you, fasting will not be easy. The day you decide to fast, John and accounting for sure will bring two dozen donuts into work. You jerk. Of all the days I crave donuts, you never brought them. Today's the day. It'll also be the day where a vendor takes the whole team out to lunch at your favorite restaurant. It'll be the day the school cafeteria serves your all time favorite food. If you choose a day to fast, the world will not conspire to make it easy. But if you follow through on that commitment, I think what you'll discover is something secret and personal between you and the Lord will begin to happen. And I really believe. It will cause us to grow. I want to invite us to just respond to the Lord right now. I don't know how you feel about fasting. You now know how I feel about it, but I have no idea on what kind of soil those words have fallen. Um, You know. Some of you are intrigued. All of this has got you thinking, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm not going to stake all my hopes on it, but I think this is one piece of it that is missing in my life, and I'm going to try. Others have well-rehearsed reasons why this will never happen for me. Others are struggling even to want intimacy with God or want to express sorrow. Wherever you are, just say, God, if you are real... It's better for me to actually know you, approach you, engage with you. I don't want to live this weird thing where I'm just next to you but not looking at you. I want to engage you. And if fasting is one way you've given us to fully express and experience that relationship with you, help me to do it. I think we all know that when we say I I should do something, It's as good as never really doing it. The only time a conviction becomes real is when we say on that spot, I will. And we set a concrete commitment in our hearts in place. So if you're among those who are feeling drawn by this, challenged by this, I want to encourage you to make a concrete commitment to the Lord right now in this moment, this sacred moment. To say, Lord, that's it then. Whatever else happens in my life, this Wednesday, this Thursday, I'm going to try. And I'm asking you truly to meet me in that. Give me that experience that will touch me in a deep place. Help me to express the sorrow I feel over how wrong everything is. To cry out to you and say, where are you? Do something. Come near to us. Show up. I want to experience that even in my body this week. So I make a commitment to you. I'm going to do it this week. On this day, help me, God, to have the fullest experience in it. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.